Hi there, and welcome to episode three of the Airflow podcast, produced by Astronomer. Over the past six months, we've taken a complete deep dive into the data engineering space and have heard from some extremely interesting people about their use of Apache Airflow. We're extremely excited to keep the ball rolling in our mission to solidify Airflow as the gold standard for ETL. If you didn't catch the last episode, my name is Pete DeJoy, and I'm a product specialist here at Astronomer. I conducted these interviews with Viraj Parekh, one of Astronomer's data engineers. While you'll likely hear from me occasionally, you'll probably hear more of Viraj's voice asking interview questions, as he's the real Airflow expert. For reference, he sounds something like this. Hi, I'm Viraj. I like the New York Knicks, long walk on the beach, and talking about data infrastructure. This week, we'll be discussing Airflow best practices. You'll hear from pieces of our conversations with Alan Cruikshank, Business Insights and Data Manager at Tails.com, Chris Riccamini, Principal Software Engineer at WePay, and Bolka de Bruin, CTO of Advanced Analytics Technology at ING. Just a quick note before we dive in, we received some feedback on last week's episode that it was kind of hard to follow with all the fragments of conversations and relatively abrupt transitions. We hugely appreciate the feedback, and I'm really going to try to include longer portions of interviews going forward to improve the fluidity of the episodes. As I might have mentioned earlier, we're podcasters by hobby and data nerds by trade, so thanks for bearing with us as we work to make this podcast great. Without further ado, let's dive into episode three of the Airflow podcast, Best Practices. We'll begin with a quick rundown of how Alan Cruikshank approaches Airflow DevOps and best practices at Tails.com. Hope you enjoy. Um, so can you talk to me a little about how you handle almost the, uh, the DevOps side of, Air, side of Airflow? So like deploying DAGs, scaling, any of that stuff, apart from the actual data job themselves, but kind of the underlying infrastructure for them? So um, I guess let's tackle it in two halves. So there's the, the DevOps side of, of Airflow itself as a core application. Um, so we run our Airflow deployment entirely Dockerized. Um, so it's all Docker containers. And then we, so we have a separate container for the scheduler. We have a separate container for the web uh, app. We have a separate container for each of the workers. And each of those containers is running on, on Amazon ECS, so Elastic Container Service. So, uh, I think with them rolling out tools like Fargate, so uh, which I guess is any kind of managed cl- container running service um, where you don't have to worry about the servers, I think we'll probably take advantage of that. We run all of our infrastructure in Europe. I mean, we're a, we're a UK-based company, um, and Fargate isn't available yet. Uh, but for now, we run it on ECS. And, and I think they're beyond, I guess, basic uh, continuous deployment practices. So you know, we commit to a Git repo and that will automatically push out new versions of each of the containers. I don't think we're doing anything particularly exciting there. Um, the DevOps side around um, actually writing the operators and um, writing pipelines actually were, were super light, almost to the point, I mean, we're, given we're a relatively small team, it, you kind of do your own DevOps. Um, if, you, if you're going to be in a particular area of the code base, often make it better for the next person that's around there and do, do things that are, that are nice there. I think there's a, there's a space in the future for us to have dedicated DevOps people, but at, a, at the scale of a data team where we have you know, five people, we don't, we don't have a DevOps guy. Everyone's a DevOps guy. <laughs> yeah, I, can, I hear that, yeah. Um, so kind of, uh, going along that same line, um, do you have any like internal set of best practices that you use or kind of standard conventions that you've, you've implemented through your team just for like 
documentation and standardization sake? Um, yeah, and I, I think a lot of it comes down to uh, I get, there are two there are two areas that I found super helpful. One is around naming conventions. Um, I think Airflow is is really flexible, but you, it, uh, it gives you lots of different places that you can give things names. Um, so there's there's the DAG object. There is the name of the DAG, the name property of the DAG object. There is the file name of the file name of the file that has the DAG in it, and then you have that all for the task as well. So each task instance has an object which has a name. It also has a name property, uh, and it may also have various dependent files file structures. Um, so I guess we've we've tried to adopt a pretty strict naming convention where. The, the file name the DAG lives in is the same as the DAG object, is the same as the name of the DAG. Um, the tasks names are the same as the task objects, like I guess, label. Um, and that where they have external template files, so whether they're HTML files or SQL files, they either live in a folder that is the same name as the DAG name, or that they are at least prefixed with the name of the DAG. So that it's really obvious which templates apply to which DAG, which DAG has which tasks in it, um, and, and, and so on and so forth. I think the other bit of, I guess, general practice, and I think this is more um, uh, software best practice, is, is just as far as possible, try not to repeat yourself. If you find yourself writing the same thing over and over again, uh, you know, build it into the operator. Um, or, or write some function to do that rather than just copying and pasting the same code everywhere. I think what, when, when we first started using Airflow, because, uh, because it's almost so easy to set up new tasks by just copying and pasting the previous one, I think until it becomes a pain point, you actually realize that you're unwittingly writing a lot of duplicated code. So for example, you have a DAG that's got five tasks in it, likelihood is the owner property of all those tasks is the same. The DAG property of all of those tasks is the same. The, uh, there's probably a whole heap of other properties of each of those tasks that are the same. But because it's so easy to just copy and paste that code between them all, you just copy and paste it all rather than, rather than either writing some general properties or um, abstracting a little more. And I think as you know, our Airflow deployments got bigger, and I think we, I guess for scale, we've probably got I don't know, around 30 DAGs running um, regularly. Um, and they've got uh, schedules anywhere from every 15 minutes to every week. Um, I think as we've got to that scale, that it starts to be at the point where you forget the code you wrote you know, a year ago. And that's become more important for us and, and just standardization. But I think that's, that's general, that's good software development practice more generally rather than. Thanks so much to Alan for coming on. We had an awesome chat with him. He's an incredibly smart dude, and I'm sure we'll be releasing the rest of our interview at some point soon because it was a really, really great one. Up next, we have a more extended cut of the Chris Riccamini interview that you heard a little portion of last week. He'll be discussing how he defines Airflow, some of the design principles that he uses when pushing up new releases, and some of his personal best practices. It's a really great chat and really excited for you guys to hear it. Cool. Um, so I think another cool part about this is uh, we tend to ask all our guests the same question and see how they respond differently to it. And the question is, uh, define Airflow for me. 
So if I was just <laughs> a random person asked like, hey, what's Airflow do? Uh, how would you answer that? Okay. Uh... I'm thinking. <laughs> Feel free to be um, as technical or as high level as you want. My inclination is to say it's a it's a job scheduler, but I think that gets pretty mixed in with like yarn and grid schedulers and stuff. So I would say um, it's a workflow executor um, that orchestrates um, and executes uh, tasks where tasks can be basically any logic you want from you know, random programmatic logic to interacting with databases to interacting with web services. Um, and its its primary goal is really to, um, you know, measure and maintain the life cycle of these tasks to deploy to, from deployment all the way through to, you know, either failure or completion um, to allocate them on specific machines um, and to, I guess, provide the, the necessary metrics and monitoring for it. So how is the task performing? Is it failed? How many times has it failed? How long is it taking? What do the logs say? That kind of stuff. So it, it definitely has overlap with like other grid schedulers. If you look at something like, again, Yarn, where you know it's it's responsible for putting tasks on machines and you know sensibly letting you see um, the logs for the tasks that are running and uh, whether they're you know failed or still running. Um, where it differs is it's very ETL and scheduler driven, or, or I guess time driven, um, in that it uh, it's meant for like recurring tasks. So, for example, if you want to suck data out of a database and load it into uh, a data warehouse, you might want to do that every hour. Um, so you do this on a recurring schedule. This is something that most generic grid schedulers don't have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that was a really good answer, really in-depth. Um, we had one other person say cron on crack. So <laughs> yeah, that, that is a, uh, a snappier, more marketable, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, though I'm not sure our marketing team would love us saying cron on crack on a <laughs> or something. Yeah, <laughs> might rub them the wrong way. Yeah, right? <laughs> cool. Um, so kind of just going right along those lines, um, you talked to me a little bit about, uh, you can say as high level as you want, but some of the specific tasks you have DAGs running for and kind of the technical side and the use case and the business side of those? Yeah. Um, so let me start with the business side first, or maybe the, um, the use case side rather than the implementations of it. Mm -hmm. um, we have a number of different tasks, but they break, or DAGs rather, but they break down into a few buckets. One of them is ETL. So we need to get data out of our OLTP uh, production databases and get it into various systems downstream. Um, so we we use it for uh, for that. And as part of, as part of that, we um, we have a bunch of data quality check DAGs as well that validate that the data in the destination database matches what's in the source database. So you don't have missing rows and you don't have you know perhaps you you might miss an update. And so the the field value in the source is different than in the destination database. Um, the, so that's one category, sort of ETL. The, the second category is about report generation and materialization. So this is essentially, once we have the data in our data warehouse, we want to generate reports based off of the data. So this could be everything from like financial reconciliation stuff to uh, use it, usage of our product to um, uh, even in some cases like uh, not really monitoring, but um, looking at logs in our data warehouse and seeing what's going on uh, there. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a second use case. 
Um, the third use case is really around machine learning. So this is, uh, we want to train models. We want to um, uh, basically explore the data, do feature uh, engineering for the, for the models uh, and so on. So our data scientists um, interact with Airflow a bit um, to do the training. And so essentially how it works is they start off, they're fiddling around, maybe they're doing ad hoc queries. Eventually they get to a point where uh, they train a model and it looks good. Um, we need to productize the model so that it, um, you know, it runs always, not just one time and not just on somebody's laptop. And so for that, we, uh, we run the, um, the DAGs in Airflow. And that one in particular, it's really nice to have Airflow as a Python, you know, the DAGs as Python and the tasks as Python because a lot of our data scientists spend time in Python. So it's pretty natural for them to interact with Airflow. Um, so that's the third uh, large bucket. Um, the fourth bucket is something that we're just getting into. And this is more, uh, to get back to your, your cron on crack mention, um, we, we were uh, heavily uh, cron-based a few years ago. Um, payments by nature, a lot of it is asynchronous processing after the you know, credit card swipe happens. And so um, uh, we had a bunch of stuff that was running in cron. And uh, you, know, you bump up against all the problems that Airflow tends to solve, like retrying and alerting and all that kind of stuff scheduling and not allowing overlapping jobs. Uh, these are all problems that uh, I think anyone who uses cron at quote unquote at scale uh, can relate to. Um, and so we are migrating a lot of our cron jobs out of um, cron and into Airflow. And the model there is, is much more of um, uh, the task kicks off basically a call to a web service and the web service then triggers some logic. Um, versus where it was before where like cron would would execute um, the logic itself um, <clears throat> and I can get into the imp implementation implementation details about that but those are the four use cases right so um, cron machine learning reporting and uh, ETL <clears throat> um, now you wanted me to go into implementation a little bit or did you want to uh, do something else yeah, so implementation on the um, on the ETL side is pretty, pretty, I would say pretty normal. Um, it's, you know, select star from data over the last 15 minutes, do that every 15 minutes, load it into the destination database. We've increasingly been moving away from uh, Airflow for the core ETL pipeline in favor of uh, streaming solutions, but we still use it for some uh, things. And namely uh, some of our um, some of our MySQL databases are still using Airflow um, where we, we take the data from MySQL and load it into uh, our data warehouse, um, which in our case is Google Cloud uh, BigQuery. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, we, the second part that I mentioned and I think is a little less common is to run these data quality checks. And we do two kinds of checks. One is just a row level count. So how many rows are in this table? How many rows are in that table? If they match, things are good. Um, there's some slight nuance to it. Um, for example, if you have hard deletes in your tables, it gets a little wonky. Um, uh, in general, um, that's one, one data quality check we do that's sort of uh, easy and relatively cheap to do. The second one is more expensive but more thorough, and that is where we will actually do row by row, column by column checks. And we do this less frequently, um, sort of on a, you know, um, maybe a weekly basis uh, would be uh, more the, the schedule by which we would do this is we actually take you know a sliver of a table 
and compare it to the exact same sliver of the table in the destination database and validate that every single row and column is identical. And that, that basically lets us sleep at night because it, know, it means that we know that as of, you know, within a week, <laughs> that we would know if there was any uh, bad data in the system at all. And, and that's important when you're doing things like, you know, generating board reports or, or generating reports that you would want to send your customers or generating reports that, you know, maybe for uh, financial purposes, like all that kind of stuff, you really have to be able to trust your data. Um, so doing yeah. the data quality checks is something that gets us there. Now, scalability-wise, some of this stuff may not uh, be feasible for everybody or for all tables, but um, it, it's definitely worth doing in cases where you can do it. Um, so that's the ETL implementation part of it. The um, reporting part, uh, I guess, breaks down into two areas. One are these sort of materialized reports that just get made into CSV files, and those get implement, uh, emailed rather uh, using like an Airflow email operator, say once a day, and they just get blasted out to whoever wants to consume them. This is something that I think um, specifically some of our non-engineering teams like because they tend to consume things in like, you know, CSV files or Excel spreadsheet kind of thing, and um, getting just a, a report every day with the stuff they need in an in a email attachment um, makes them happy. Um, the second path in this um, use case bucket is that we have our business analyst folks generating um, these materialized uh, data warehouses for various um, teams. So for example, you might want a risk data warehouse, you might want a product data warehouse or a sales data warehouse. So they, they do that. So they take all of our um, the data that we load into our data warehouse and they you know join, filter, munge uh, the stuff into something that's more consumable for the various teams or more relevant for the various teams. We, we tend to follow kind of a, a extract load transform pattern rather than extract transform load pattern, um, which means that my team, the data infrastructure team, pretty much just takes the data out and loads it into uh, the downstream systems. It doesn't do a lot of transformation as it's loading. Um, so the, the um, analysts, the business analyst folks tend to do some of the transformation to make the data a little more consumable to non-engineers. Um, and then some of that stuff gets fed into our visualization tier where we, you know, can make lovely little line charts and pie charts and so on. Um, yeah. Now, machine learning wise, um, the implementation is, um, it's basically a series of uh, very large and sophisticated DAGs that do um, some, some feature engineering and then a bunch of model uh, training and then uh, some validation as well to make sure that things are performing reasonably well against the holdout set. Um, and then the last part of that is pushing the data from uh, our data environment into the production environment where, where it can be used by the modeling system. Um, for more details on this, like we, we do have blog posts. Basically, everything I'm talking about, we have blog posts on. So I'm, I'm going to kind of leave it at a relatively high level, but we have like pretty detailed blog posts about um, how that stuff works. But the general development flow is, as I mentioned before, uh, data scientists um, playing around, maybe playing with a new library or uh, trying to add a new feature to an existing model, uh, trying a new model, um, initially starts locally on their laptop. Um, and one of the things that we do that, that I think is really pretty cool is um, with, with Google Cloud Airflow integration, you can actually spin up Airflow locally on your laptop and run it locally, um, but you can authenticate uh, as yourself, which means 
uh, in Google Cloud, which means you have uh, Google Cloud access to uh, the data that you need to, to do the model training and so on. Um, so they do a bit of that. Um, sorry, I'm rambling. <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. That's exactly uh, what we wanted. <laughs> uh, where was I going with this? Um, I'm gonna validating. Let me talk here. I was talking about the the development lifecycle for for model training and stuff. Um, anyway, so they yeah. they do some uh, training either locally or uh, in a Google Cloud project on some higher end machines, maybe with GPUs. Um, eventually, they um, they take the stuff that they've written and uh, make it into an Airflow DAG, and that's what actually gets run by us um, on the Airflow uh, systems that we have. Um, the last one was Cron, which I mentioned. And this one is a little bit, um, I'd say, not experimental, but uh, it's our, our newest use case. Um, I think you basically have two options when it comes to Cron replacement. One is to take the logic that Cron was triggering uh, locally and run it locally in an Airflow um, task or series of tasks, right? So this would be, for example, if you had a, um, if you had a cron script that was, say, querying a database and then uh, updating a bunch of rows based on some custom logic, um, you could you could have a task that would that would do that um, in Airflow. And the disadvantage to that approach is that you're basically doing all the logic locally on the task instance that is uh, running the logic. Mm -hmm. um, which is sort of an, a bit of an Airflow anti-pattern. You want, in general, to have as much um, logic being executed outside of the Airflow worker itself. Um, so, for example, if you were querying a database, uh, or rather, if you were doing some logic, you would, you would want another machine to do the logic. Um, so the way we implemented it was, was not to just directly port the scripts that we had in cron and copy them in as tasks in Airflow, but actually to, um, to have Airflow kind of be the scheduler, but be the... Um, have this have a web service or a series of web services do the execution. So in, in our model, what that means is the Airflow uh, DAGs kick off, and the tasks uh, essentially issue a curl request or an HTTP request to a, a web service, um, and that web service is responsible for executing uh, the logic that needs to get executed. Uh, now the trade-off here is like if it if it takes a long period of time for the web service to do the work you end up having to manage the connection between Airflow and the web service over a long period of time. If there's network flips, you have to reconnect. So you end up having to build kind of like job execution state into the web service. Um, so that's the, the downside. But the upside is that the tasks in Airflow become very dumb and, and therefore very, uh, very easy to operate uh, because they're not using any CPU, they're not using any disk, they're not um, you know, using any memory, they're just kind of sitting there triggering the, the execution of the logic. Yeah. Um, it sounds like keep everything pretty item potent too, which sounds nice. Yeah, yeah. That, again, that's sort of like uh, Airflow golden rule. You should be able to run the tasks and DAGs over and over again without breaking things. Yeah. Um, so kind of going right along that golden rule thing, um, do you have a list of like internal best practices you try to push when you're developing DAGs or writing workflows or anything? Yes. Um, we <laughs> Off the top of my head, I don't remember them all, but... Initially, when we started running Airflow, I was very um, uh, guarded about what we would allow people to do because we were running a multi-tenant Airflow, mm -hmm. basically many teams, many different DAGs, all in one machine. Um, 
And on top of that, we weren't using the salary executor, which allows you to have some level of isolation, at least at the machine level. Um, and so what that would what that means is one poorly behaving DAG would uh, could, could potentially you know bring down the whole machine. Now, even if we were using something like Celery Executor, uh, at the time that we were first spinning it up, there were still enough bugs in the scheduler itself to where you <laughs> you could bring down the scheduler with a poorly performing DAG, even if you were using Celery Executor. So uh, we or we I, I banned a number of features. For example, sub DAGs was a big one. I was just like, we're not supporting sub DAGs. This this thing is uh, not really working the way uh, we, we want it to right now. Yeah, we do the same thing. Sub DAGs are just kind of the bane of everyone's existence around here. Yeah, and I think I, I'm not. I think there's like some faction of people that use them and like them, and some faction that that really don't. Um, so I, I definitely fall in the faction that doesn't like them, and um, we we don't use them much. We opt for many smaller DAGs rather than fewer larger DAGs with sub DAGs in them. So we have like you know hundreds and hundreds of DAGs, but they tend to be on the small side. The machine learning ones tend to be. Excuse me, the ones that uh, are a little bit larger. But um, anyway, uh, other stuff that we that we ban. Uh oh, sorry. Give me a minute here. You're fine. I just had this meeting schedule it thing schedule itself. <laughs> we got this conference system, and it like started its own meeting. Um, okay. Um, so subdags is one. Um, we implemented some other rules, not really preventing people from doing stuff, but we um, we require that every DAG have an owner, that all DAGs have um, you know an email address associated with it, where uh, emails can get sent when failures occur, um, and we validate all that stuff via CI script that runs in our CI environment. So anytime a DAG gets, or rather a pull request gets sent in, we run this. Um, script and check whether uh, all the DAGs that are in the repo are conforming and have an owner and a, at least one email that we know of, that we understand, right? So it can't just be some random person. It has to be like a team's email address um, so that when that person leaves the company, the emails don't just go into the ether anymore. Um, so we do a, a little bit of um, uh, validation prior to commit. The other thing we do prior to commit is just sort of basic flake eight pep Validation where you make sure that you know your spaces and colons are all nice and go looking good. And then lastly, <laughs> we um, we make sure that all bags are able to be imported by Airflow. So what that means is not necessarily a guarantee that your DAG is going to run, but that at least your your DAG isn't going to fail to import due to you know a missing requirement or uh, some funky typo or anything like that. And so it gives us some measure of stability and, and understanding that at least you're not likely to break anyone else. Even if your DAG doesn't really behave as expected, it's at least going to be imported by Airflow. The DAG parser is going to be able to parse it and give some you know, meaningful information about it. So those are kind of the three things we do uh, on the continuous integration uh, pre-commit side of things. Um, other features that we don't really use, we're not heavy users of variables right now. Um, not for any particular reason, it's just we've gotten by without them. Um, I'm sure there's other stuff. I actually have like a, a vouch shout list. If you want to give me a minute, I can pull it up. <laughs> yeah, please do, yeah. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me pull up the list here. 
my weekly. We have a uh, we have a weekly meeting every Friday over uh, do's and don'ts for Airflow. It's almost like a style guide meeting, and we're just looking for more stuff to throw into mm -hmm. that because uh, like there's a lot of great documentation on there, but there isn't so much as to like what's the best yeah. way to do things or what's the way you should avoid. So we're trying yeah. to like produce so that ourselves. I think that uh, the it is your happiness with Airflow to a large extent is going to depend upon your ability to know what you should and shouldn't run. <laughs> because you can run Airflow extremely stably if, if, with a certain set of features, or you can have a, a wildly unstable experience with other set of features, right? Um, so the stuff that we ban uh, more or less outright are subdags, uh, timeouts, using timeouts, DAG timeouts, um, sensors, um, and XCOM uh, data larger than 48 KB. Uh, because again, all the XCOM stuff is stored in the database. The sensor banning is due to uh, starvation. You can basically have sensors that just sit there and take all the slots in a given queue. Um, and they don't have in Airflow the constant. Sensor is not a first class thing. It's just an operator that blocks. And so it's not really implemented properly. Uh, and so you can get starvation there. Um, we also don't allow the backfill command uh, in Airflow, which is via the CLI, you can trigger these backfills which kind of spin up um, a like scheduler uh, in and of itself that's running independent of the main scheduler. And there were just a ton of problems with that initially. I believe there's still like one minor race condition uh, with running multiple schedulers, but it's very small because Bolke went and fixed a bunch of stuff in the scheduler area. I think it was Bolke. Um, but we, we just don't allow it. The other thing in general that we don't allow, mostly for security reasons, is we don't it is pretty common in a lot of other uh, companies, especially startup type companies, to allow people to like SSH in or run Airflow commands locally that interact with the Airflow cluster remotely. Uh, we just flat out don't allow that. Like you commit your DAGs to a repository, that repository is then deployed to an Airflow that you don't have command line access to where it runs, right? And so all the CLI stuff, um, again, like backfill or trigger DAG and that kind of stuff, just is not allowed here. Yeah, don't ask me at the time. I put a 2015 and 20 instead of 2017 on a backfill. <laughs> Came back like two hours later. I'm like, why isn't done yet? Oh wait, it's going back two years instead of yeah. So the like way two we days handle, <laughs> uh, we handle backfills uh, via the start date usually. So for example, if you want to um, load a new table using um, uh, an Airflow DAG, um, and that table's first row is in 2015. We will just set the start date in 2015. And um, we have catch up enabled in our Airflow CFG, which basically means that Airflow will see the start date is 2015 and that no tasks have been, or DAGs have been run for it. And so it will start going through one by one running them all, um, which effectively does what Backfill does, <laughs> except it does it on the main scheduler. Oh, that's super interesting. Oh, yeah. Let me, let me make a note of that. Yeah, that's yeah. how we do all of our uh, ETL backfilling is just set the start date. We basically like look at the minimum modify time on uh, the row on the table rather, and then we set that as the start date. And because we're actually chunking, you know, day by day in the task or, or hour by hour or whatever it is, it'll start at the point of that first row and it'll just go forward from there. As I'm sure many of you know, Chris is a pretty huge contributor to the Airflow community and to the open source project. So we were really excited to get a chance to speak with him and we, had, we were really happy with how the conversation turned out.
So up next, we did something similar, and we brought in a longer cut of a little snippet that you heard last week from Bulky to Bruin at ING. He's also a huge contributor to the project, and we really thought that we should share a conversation with the community because he had a lot of valuable insights. So up next, you'll hear a conversation ranging from discussions of an airflow book to best practices um, to some of his personal kind of feature requests or things that he would like to see built out in airflow going forward. So hope you enjoy this one. Uh, what are some of the core airflow design principles or core airflow features that you really like about it, right? Like what are some of the way, like the way it handles tasks or something like what about it makes you really like it and makes you want to use it more, if anything? Um, but we, uh, now one thing comes to mind is obviously uh, the web interface, although it's starting to get a little bit dated, but uh, I know the guys from WePay are pretty busy uh, uh, busy with, uh, with moving that to a, a different setup. Uh, but having the overview of what's going on now and what happened in the past and what's going on in the future is something that's not very available within other products. Um, the other thing is that having the, the ability to do the backfilling, so changing, basically changing history, um, is also something that is very convenient because you know, while you're creating your products, uh, you need to versionize your data, but your data also needs to change to the to the data, uh, or and it needs to change to the new demands that you're getting in. Uh, but you need, you might even need both. So you need to go back into history, do redo all those calculations, but might not want to do the full set every time. So those backfills really help out uh, to just do the particular parts that you actually need to do. So you can edit the information while not, you know, doing it from the entirely from the beginning with all the tasks involved right away. Because that, you know, solves a lot of um, capacity issues uh, if you would need to do that every time again. Um, the required item potency is actually also in, uh, uh, is also um, in, or is actually very useful because it does allow you to go back in time and go forward. And for auditing, this is actually also interesting because if you need to recalculate your models every time fully from the beginning um, and you know do all the data crunching from the beginning, it comes, becomes pretty hard to have a kind of auditing trail in place. And this is important uh, for us as well to, uh, uh, to do that. It's not perfect, but it's a lot better than you know, doing that calculation every time again. Um, the other things we do like is obviously the, the retryability of tasks. The, the data is unreliable. The data is unreliable, uh, or the systems that it's uh, that that they're on are unreliable. That allows you to do retries is uh, is uh, and have those on failure callbacks and these kind of things are are also very interesting and very useful um, because the um because the, uh, the 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 other systems that are in place they, they just fail and they just stop and you'll be called as you, if you're an operations guy you'll be called up in the middle of the night and you have to restart your job and then it, and then it doesn't fail anymore <laughs> that's kind of sucks if you can have that programmatically done that's actually a, a, a lot better um and then finally i guess not having that it's that's being written in a programming language and you can use it in a, in a programming language in this case python obviously makes it easier to test and also much more flexible because you, you can use uh, nifi or something else but you'll be just clicking uh clicking it and uh, if if that connector doesn't work for you at that moment well 
uh, that's tough luck because you, know, you cannot continue. And, and, there, and data, especially with the kind of source systems that we are getting, uh, it's definitely not standardized. So you'll need to do changes every time. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then kind of going right along that, um, as you've, um, how, how long have you guys been using Airflow? And what um, is, kind of how has the setup for it changed since? So, so say again, you want to know how much, how long have we been using Airflow? And the second question was? Like, how has your use of it changed since you started using it? Most people we talk to start using it for something, a very, very specific thing, and then it branches out into a much more general tool set rather than something to solve a specific problem. Um, uh, well, we started using it about two years ago, I think, uh, when we needed a, a workflow, uh, a workflow manager, um, and we didn't want to get involved with Uzi. Um, and other parts of this bank were using uh, were using Chrome instead, and we thought ah that doesn't really work for us. Um, so we started looking at Luigi first, and then one of the guys uh, in the team said, oh, "Why don't you look at Airflow?" And then okay, we got the and I personally got involved with Airflow uh, because of that remark, uh, and then we just started putting it to use. Um, the uh, what has changed. Um, I think we're on the verge of the bigger change. So for managing the, the different clusters, I think that's the big change. For now, it's just building the DAGs uh, and and having the you know running the products that we have. Uh, I consider that pretty standard, basically. Um, and did that does that? Um, we're not. Let's say we're not at the size of an Airbnb yet, or uh, maybe even WePay uh, is also uh, is also more advanced in these areas, just because they have those data lakes basically ready. So they just built a new DAG and you get a new output. Uh, for us, it's more like okay, uh, filling those data lakes in uh, and uh, and having that data available, and then go from there. And we're just getting at that point that it makes sense to go beyond that. Uh, and having, uh, sort of, for example, something like Superset on top of that, uh, where it becomes more flexible. Makes sense. Um, and then as you've kind of expanded use for it and put it into different problems, uh, kind of, have you had any issues with scaling up or just giving it more load? Um, not really. Uh, what we do see on the operations side is well, obviously I've been involved with Airflow pretty intimately, so I uh, I know quite a lot of things uh, how about uh, how the scheduler works uh, and uh, what the um, kind of automatically know what kind of best practices there are there, and I do know that uh, for newcomers to Airflow, this is kind of uh, an area where we're lacking in documentation, and uh, I think somebody. Wrote, a, uh, wrote something somewhere else and said, Yo, you can actually make money by writing a book on airflow operations. And I, I do think that is a bit true because the kind of questions that we get is like, hey, my, uh, my, my airflow scheduling is not working and the tasks are not running anymore. And then we'll find out that somebody just gave it uh, maybe two or three gigs of memory and started running long running tasks with, with you know, where the processing happens even on the local machine. Well, well that doesn't really work. Uh, these kind of, and it's, it's, these kind of things come in and we didn't have those issues. Um, but I do think that uh, this could be in documentation where, uh, where it is a little bit easier to start from uh, and those assumptions 
are you know straightened out a bit quicker so those growing pains that other people have seen um, especially because we're just gradually growing we're not exploding in the amount of decks right away um, we're and therefore we are able to tackle some of the issues that we're that are coming in a little bit easier with the capacity uh, that we have um, we'll just create a patch for it uh, when we encounter it and we're not being hurt right away um, so um, um, actually the experience has been pretty good I guess that's the conclusion I would say yeah um, it's funny you mentioned writing a book for airflow for more like documentation best practices um, we've gotten that from a few other people we've talked to where all of their remarks are essentially like, I think what I'm doing is right, but I wish there was like a defined answer. Like, should I be using a sub DAG for this? Should I be using a sensor versus two DAGs or whatever the heck? Like, everyone wants like confirmation that what they're doing is correct. Uh, I think I think a couple of best practices there would be interesting because there's a lot of ways to a lot of that's the strength of Airflow as well to have a lot of ways to solve. Um, uh, to solve some particular problems there's not one way to solve a particular issue there's multiple ways to solve it um, but you probably want to have some guidance how other people are solving it and uh, why they made certain choices uh, and why they didn't make certain other choices in this case i think that would really help um, the, the, treasure, the treasure trove is indeed uh, quite often on the mailing list or in, on the older mailing list on the google, google groups one as well um and also sometimes by just asking um but yeah i think you're right you know having that or airflow operations book i think it's something uh, maybe if i find a time somewhere or or somebody wants to co-write it they'll deliver a couple of uh, paragraphs or uh, chapters um uh, sure <laughs> but it's also uh, we uh, we need to run uh, this group we need to, <laughs> we're growing it finding the time uh, to write a book in the meantime is uh, well a bit tough yeah right yeah um it's funny so when we were talking about this podcast internally our uh our ceo rai wanted to kind of like have this so his argument was that the book agile development agile development on rails really helped the ruby on rails movement and he, he's kind of like this can kind of be that but for airflow and if it goes well we can like talk about writing a book or something so super interesting about that yeah, I, I, the podcasts are actually nice. I listened to the podcast you guys had with Max, um, but I do think you'd like to kind of, you know, be able to have an example that you can look up. Uh, and that's a bit different from doing that from a podcast because I would talk if I would talk code now, that would be a bit awkward, I guess. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe if not a full book, then just like some added documentations with some more dynamic examples. Like yeah, I think yeah. from our side, one of the coolest parts of Airflow is how you can. Uh, dynamically configure DAGs and dynamically generate DAGs. And most of the documentation out there just doesn't even talk about that. It's like a little too basic for some of the heavier use cases. That is, that is absolutely true. So, but that's, uh, um, yeah. Uh, and there have been talks about it. There have been meetups in, uh, in, uh, in SF uh, uh, around this as well in the Bay Area um, that where people talked about it and how to approach these kind of things. Uh, we pay definitely did that. I think there was a, a Laura Lawrence I think her name is, she talked about it as well. Um, and also the different testing strategies, how do you test your DAGs um, is, a, is, a, is something that should be in this book, uh, but has been talked about online as well. But there's, you know, that's only, they are provided with generic examples with a, with a large, uh, uh, with a large, uh, um, they'll give a big picture of how they generate, what they generated. 
uh, but I think uh, an Airflow course <laughs> so is also a nice addition to it. I think you can make money with that too. Yeah, I'll start teaching something on Udemy or something for like ten dollars yeah, yeah, yeah. a course or something. Uh, we have a consultancy organization uh, in uh, in uh, the Netherlands now called GoData Driven. One of the uh, guys there just became a committer for Airflow, and I think they'll probably do something like that because they're a big user of Airflow. They put it in a kind of in every kind of company they encounter because there's nothing else really on the market that you know makes it easy for them to uh, to uh, to do their companies. They might actually do a uh, a course in the future, at least here. Oh yeah, what's that company's name? I'd love to reach out. One more time. It's called Go Data Driven. Go Data Driven. Yeah. All right, super interesting. We'll reach out to them for sure. Um, cool. So, in kind of the spirit of best practices and testing procedures, um, do you have any internal best practices that you use when you're trying to write DAG, or any like how do you handle testing a DAG versus deploying a DAG? Um, tests are executed in our, our CI pipeline. That's cool. Um, to be honest, uh, I'm not writing the DAGs currently myself. That's what happens in a team. So I don't have a current look on what to do. I know they're integrated within the, within the pipelines. Um, and so I, to be honest, I can't share much about it. We do test them. That's the only thing I can say. And there's test coverage provided with them. And, uh, uh, but sometimes they still get stuck in, in production sometimes as well. Uh, we're, we have upgraded to the 1.90 uh, RC1 uh, uh, pre-release. So release candidate in this case. Uh, we encountered some issues with the SSH operators. We didn't find them during testing. Um, so uh, that's sometimes you get those things. Yeah, we're still, uh, I think we're on 1.82 and it's been relatively stable so far. Um, that being said, I'll probably break now that I've jinxed it. But that's a, it's a, so Watch it for 1.9.0. Eh? That's, a, that's a scary release because it's a dot .0 release. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think they're, they're dropping a bunch of things in 2.0, correct, right? Like direct imports and some other small things like that. Yeah, we're saying that, right? I mean, but we can go from one to nine to one point ten. Nobody's saying that we go from one point nine to two point oh. So <laughs> we'll find out if that's really the case. I do think some of those deprecated features do make sense to remove them. It's just you know uh, trying to push people to a more sensible uh, way of doing a couple of things. Yeah, makes sense. Um, I'm trying to see if I have anything else on my list of questions here. Give me one second. Yeah, so uh, kind of talking about the future of the project, um, if you could kind of snap your fingers and have one feature fully built out or one bug fully solved, uh, kind of where would you want that to be? Ooh, I think one of the most ideal things I would say, um, and some of our, let's say, some are already being worked on. So the Kubernetes part is somebody's already we're being worked, uh, being working on it. So the guy from Bloomberg is doing that. Um, so if that's there, I wouldn't. I want it. Uh, I'm not. Uh, it's not going to be my choice for now. But I, if I would be able to uh, disallow tasks to access the Airflow database, I would be pretty happy um, because this is a, I would consider this a bit of a security issue. Uh, and you, and you, you get people that arbitrarily write those DAGs, basically, and, uh, and uh, those operators, and they can access uh, the connection database, for example, so, or the connection table. 
And so they can pick up any kind of connection they'd like. Um, and yes, also uh, to locations where I would not like to have this DAG basically accessing these kind of connection details. The only way to solve that is to kind of have an API in between uh, that uh, that either that you know when the task is being executed, it gets the connection information with that task uh, already being supplied when it's being sent out to the uh, to the to the worker. Uh, this requires probably something like registration of connections because otherwise the the uh, um, the executor doesn't know which uh, connections to send with it. Um, the other uh, option uh, and the other and the API, but the other option here is that it picks it up from the API, but that will require a lot of questions to the API up front, and that's maybe not what you want because that will put another component with Airflow uh, there, which is uh, an Airflow already consists of quite a lot of components. Um, but uh, and but what would allow this API, if you have this API in place, you could actually have um, independent upgrades from each other. Because if you upgrade scheduler to a new version, but it still allows the task to, uh, to access the old version of the API, you can Asynchronously, so or, or with uh, with um, a kind of a, 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 a rollover, I think it is, uh, upgrade your workers and your scheduler. Now, basically, if you want to do it properly, you have to bring the scheduler down in every worker and the web server down, and then upgrade and then turn them on again, because otherwise, you know, the the schema from the database might not make sense anymore. Having an API in between that allows versioning of this uh, will uh, have more uh, uh, is is easier uh, for upgrades and and uh, stability and availability in the future. If I can and security as well. So if I can uh, do this, then that's this would be in place. Um, if I put yeah. a second one there, uh, I would say uh, a scheduler that will be event driven. Um, so it will start, it will be snowballing the uh, the tasks. The task can actually notify downstream tasks uh, if that they're finished or have failed. And uh, those downstream tasks can then decide by themselves whether they need to be in acute state or not. And nowadays, the scheduler is pulling all of these tasks every time. So if you have a lot of tasks and a lot of DAGs, the scheduler will take more time or will just you need. Yeah. Oh, that, that would have huge performance gains as well, right? Because then you don't have to queue up things that you know are going to execute. Exactly. So, and I already had one. Uh, uh, I was emailing with Max about it, but in, in during somewhere between 1.6 and 1.7, I already had a a proof of concept of that one. But then the the multi processing of the the multi the DAC multi processor basically kicked in, and it didn't fit anymore. So it didn't continue it at that time, and it's still a big effort to get it up uh, to get it stable. And the multiprocessor uh, for the DAX is already solving quite a lot of these issues, obviously. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to mention the API too, because uh, a lot of the other people we've talked to have kind of said that if there was almost like an Airflow API, you could abstract that use cases to more non-technical people on your team because you wouldn't have to directly interact with the console itself. Um, it would just give the platform more end users because you could wrap more things around that. Yeah. True, absolutely true. Um, uh, I think it will. Yeah, the, the API. The some of the API parts are already in place, uh, but I'm not entirely sure if it's the right approach yet. I mean, there it's basically in the web server currently, uh, but there is some 
Um, so the design of the APIs is something that still needs to be considered and should it with be with the with the web server? Probably not, I guess. I mean, I think it should be a separate component, uh, especially because the web server itself is uh, and the UI is going to be replaced in the future. Um, and I think it just makes more sense to have it separately because you you know you have got independent parts that you can uh, more microservices like uh, to replace them. Um, and also, um, yeah, well, if I would change the third thing is that the constant pulling of both the web server and the scheduler on the DAGs itself, um, and with, you know even if they haven't changed, so they're parsing the the, the DAGs the whole time, and, uh, and it's not again, not even driven, um, then that would be my third option to change that because that will just reduce so much load from these uh, areas and also a lot of you know, disk load, I guess. Uh, and uh, then the web server would immediately know whether it's a new DAG or not instead of, you know, again, pulling, uh, again, pulling the, the, the file system for it. Yeah. Um, I had to find out the hard way that every all top level code on a DAG gets executed every heartbeat and not every DAG run. If you don't put something in the DAG, and I was like, what? this is like, like, I think I was like, I had like a 10 element list or something. It was going crazy. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's code and it's being run every time. That's absolutely true. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, and I, I, we're thinking the serialization part of the DAG is actually a bit hard because um, that's, it, it seems simple for my, for my, uh, from a first perspective, you know, just serialize the DAG and you'll know, have some serializer there and keep that in memory. Um, but there, uh, some of the cases are actually pretty complex, and uh, and uh, I, what I understood from the Airbnb guys, if they would serialize some of them, that would be multiple gigabytes in memory, uh, because it just then pulls in all the dependencies uh, right away, and that makes it sometimes a little bit tough uh, to do it. I don't know what the right approach is yet. Um, I do think that kind of wireframe DAG needs to be in place, and that you only read the full DAG when it's really needed. I think the dependencies on um, for the scheduler, for example, the scheduler only cares about, you know, uh, does it does need to be scheduled or doesn't, and does it meet its dependency or not. Uh, uh, but the dependency management of that, so the check of the dependencies, actually happens with a, a bit of executing of the code, uh, and this is where it gets a little bit more tough. Yeah, we had a huge issue with how the pickling and serialization was working. Um, our CTO, Greg, eventually figured out a way around it. I don't really remember, but. That's definitely something that uh, we could be Do done a little better. Do you guys pickle the DAGs? We don't pickle DAGs anymore. No, um, I, I don't know the exact reason behind it, but I can have Greg follow up with why exactly that is because it was a pretty, it was a pretty good reason as to why because the way they were pickled before was breaking a bunch of our other stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's it's. I, I would say we need to deprecate the pickling uh, entirely or replace the pickling module with a different one. There's a. I think there's another. Uh, it's called something something pickle in this case. Somebody mentioned it. Uh, that could be an option. The other one is called marshmallow to pickle things, uh, and it's also widely used. Um, but sometimes I also think is that you know if you have an API, why do you pickle? Why do you pickle that? Because you want to supply them to the workers uh, across the across the uh, across the network. Well, the DAGs in itself are often not that big to send around. It's just a synchronization problem, right? So it's it's either have an NFS share in place or do a Git sync. But the other thing is you also have an API call in place. Uh, do I have the latest DAG for this one? Verify the checksum. If it isn't, you know, copy it over 
and then uh, and then start running it. If the new one comes in, you know, make sure that you, and you can even send let it send it to the executor so that even the uh, the to the API to check it is not required. If you know if it's if it's the same one, if it's the same uh, hash for it, then uh, then it's actually quite easy. Uh, and then it's uh, and then that that issue is solved. I had some discussion with Max around it. He was really adamant about having uh, the, uh, the the Git sync, uh, Git time machine thing in place. Um, uh, but both mine and his <laughs> yet. So the, the Git time machine, I think we've talked about it for over a year uh, now. And uh, and the, the API call, I didn't get around to implement it properly either. <laughs> Yeah, I think last we chatted with Max about pickling is uh he's trying to stay away from pickling as well because it's caused him some issues. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's yeah the, the the standard pickling in the Python is not really it's not very flexible and has a lot of issues and people do really complex things in DAGs, uh, especially if you start adding methods and uh, function calls to any and uh, or any lambda kind of thing, then it gets uh, gets difficult. Yeah, the lambdas break the pickles always. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cool. So uh, I think those are all the questions I had lined up. Um, are there is there anything cool that you're doing with Airflow that you want to give a quick plug to or anything along those lines? Um, um, well, I, I, if we do get the the the, the HA uh, multi data center Airflow up and running, I'm definitely going to scream it out to the world, I guess. But that will take us some time. Even the the the, the multi data center uh, clusters are not in place yet, so that's kind of difficult uh, to do it with. And in the meantime, we need to hire people to actually take Airflow in this case also further for us because uh, 35 people, sure. Uh, uh, but that's you know it's not an, uh, not enough engineers to actually improve Airflow for our use cases yet. Um, I, I'm doing it in my spare time, to be honest, quite a lot of times, um, uh, and that you know is, is in this case it won't be enough for us anymore as a company, where we need to pick it up a little bit more structurally. Um, and so we'll do that uh, most likely coming year, uh, where we have the budgets and uh, and the people hopefully as well eventually. So uh, if anyone is listening to this podcast. Yes, we're hiring engineers that like to work on Airflow. We had that conversation with Boke quite a while ago about the Airflow Udemy course or some sort of guided development program. And we've since launched our Space Camp program, a guided development course just for Airflow, taught completely by astronomers Airflow experts. I'll link to that in the episode description in case anyone's interested in checking it out. Furthermore, I also wanted to mention that Astronomer launched our managed Airflow offering on Product Hunt last week, so feel free to head over and show us some love if you feel so inclined. Thanks so much for tuning in again. And as I mentioned, we're working to get better at production and making this content as digestible as possible. So please don't hesitate to send us any feedback you have. You can find my email address in the podcast description. Hope to see you for the next episode.